0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org.
1: Good evening. I'm Alexander Rosen, the executive director here at Long Now. And uh, over the last 10 years of this series, uh, we've been lucky enough to have the Margaret and Will Hurst Foundation uh, funding the media that goes out, the, the podcast and the video, um, which comes out, at about 1.2 million people a year are viewing that. So it's one of our largest outputs of, uh, of kind of long now content. The, uh, as many of you may know, uh, we have a, a new venue, uh, not too new anymore. Um, how many of you have been to the Interval? Nice. Awesome. Uh, so we've been filming talks there now for uh, actually three years, I think this month because we started doing some of the talks before we even uh, before we even opened to the to the public, starting with I think Adam Rogers. Uh, But we've had talks like Neil Stevenson, Rachel Sussman, Adam Rogers—amazing speakers. Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, We've filmed all of them, but we haven't had funding to uh, to do the editing until recently, when the Elks Family Foundation uh, was able to uh, to put forth some money so that we can start uh, editing. We've got—I think—we'll be putting up uh, about 14 to 16 of those uh, with the new Interval website very shortly, and the clips from some of those, some of the highlights of those. have been going up starting uh, over the weekend, actually, and will be going up over the the next few weeks. So look out for those, and also look out for the new website. Um, And then hopefully, over time, we'll be um, actually editing and putting up uh, all of the interval content as well. So hopefully, you can enjoy that. With that, I'll give you Stuart. All right. The Long Now
0: Foundation is all about scale, thinking long, thinking big. And when it comes to doing good these days, it's also, I think, useful to think big, think scale, think global. The Long Now is also kind of engineering-based, and we're into geekery, and I'd say the world's leading do-good geek, is here to speak, Bjorn Lomborg.
2: Thank you very much, it's a great pleasure to be here and thanks a lot for the invite. What I'd like to talk to you about for the next 50 minutes is really how we can think about a better way to do as much good as we possibly can. And what I'd also like to convince you about is really that there's a way that each one of us, if we try to push our governments, and if we try to push our philanthropists to spend money in the best possible way, we can do amazing good. We can actually, and I'll try and show you that, but we can actually do more good than Bill Gates. And this is you know, obviously not because you suddenly have you know, $60 billion in your bank account, but it's because we can actually make sure that we can leverage that much money that's being spent out there and do so much more good. So that's really what I wanna talk about here today. So let's just get started. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about everything we can do in the world. And so just in 50 minutes, I I hope you appreciate, I'm gonna go a little fast on a lot of these different things Uh, but you can definitely go on our website and see all the intricacies and I'm going to try and give you sort of the gist of why this is uh, as it is and then hopefully we'll also have some good conversation afterwards when we talk about the, uh, the question. So look, there are lots of challenges in the world, but the amazing thing is there's also lots of good solutions. But the real question is, how do we pick? Well, unfortunately, very often, how do we get attention to a problem Well, typically we get attention if they're cute animals (laughs) or if they're lots of crying babies or if they're groups with great PR. And surely that's sometimes the right way to prioritize, but it's not the right way in general. We shouldn't just do something because it has cute animals or crying babies or great PR. Some of the most important things are the boring problems. This is where the geek comes in. So really, how should you prioritize? Well, you should certainly scrutinize the options carefully, right? You have to be- remember to read the fine print. I, I, I gave this talk in place. Admittedly, they were a little drunk, and he was like, "Yay!" <laughs> the f- first, re- first reaction. Um, but the reality is, you need, in order to prioritize, you need a menu with prices and sizes, and that's what we try to provide. Imagine if you see this. Cool, you can create your own pizza for $9.99. That sounds like a nice deal. But imagine if you had this sort of uh, menu, but you had no prices. Unless you're in a good expense account, that would make you a little uncomfortable to order that create your own pizza, right? You have no idea whether it's gonna cost 99 cents or whether it's gonna cost $1,000, right? And you have no idea of size either. You have no idea whether you're gonna get a very, very tiny pizza, right? or that pizza is going to serve your entire party and then some. And so that's why I think we need to start talking about when we discuss, what are we going to do? We need to know what are we going to get for our money? And that's really the menu that we're trying to do, my my think tank, the Copenhagen consensus. So we try to estimate all the cost in dollars uh, there's are typically just economic, but every once in a while there will also be social and environmental costs, and we try to accumulate all of them and express them in dollars. Likewise, then we try to estimate all the benefits in dollars. That's a little more controversial, but we try to both get the social and the environmental and the economic benefits. I'll get a little bit into how we do this, there's a whole branch of economics that try to do this, and Uh, Suffice it to say that we work with some of the best economists in the world. We try to get it right. Of course, that doesn't mean we get it right. But at least the benefit of trying to do this is then suddenly, you know what the benefit cost ratio is. You know how much it's going to cost in terms of dollars. You know how much good it's going to do in terms of dollars, although there's both environmental and social and economic benefits in there. And so you know how much bang are you getting for each buck you're spending. That's the crucial bit because then suddenly you can start comparing it across all different areas and that's what we do. So, I just came back from Haiti. Uh, We're doing a project where we're prioritizing uh, for the government of Haiti together with the Canadian Development Agency to try to look at what are all the smart things you can do in Haiti and say where can you get the most good. One of the issues that they pointed out was this. There's a lack of urban sanitation. This is a terrible picture right? That girl should not be waving through that sort of uh, dirt, right? That is surely not good for her and for everyone else that lives there. This is the kind of picture that makes you want to donate to this and say, I want to help her. I want to help all the people that are around her. I want to send money to the organization that does this in Haiti. Let me try and give you a sense of how we would think about this problem of urban sanitation in Haiti. We would try to look at the costs. So there's a number of costs. The cost is, first of all, to buy a pit latrine. It's one of the cheapest ways that you can get basic sanitation. The pit latrine per person will last 15 years, and it costs almost $44. Then you also need to empty this every 4.5 years, and that costs $33. If you assume a discount rate, and that's basically just how much is the, the interest rate that you have to pay on this, that works out as an annualized cost about $9, so every year you have to pay $9 to get this pit latrine per person per year. But surely there's a lot of good things here. There's 3.7 million people that are without uh, sanitation in urban areas in Haiti, and that means that overall in Haiti, 3,132 persons die from diarrhea. Surely we can do something about that. So there are lots of benefits. The first one is that we have fewer deaths. But we're not going to avoid all of the 3,132 deaths. First of all, uh, we're only looking at this in urban areas. But also, when you install a pit latrine, it doesn't mean that all the fecal matter goes away. It only means that there's less fecal matter in the uh, the drinking water that you have. So you have less diarrhea, but you have not no diarrhea, you have less death, but not no deaths. We estimate that there's going to be 254 fewer deaths per year by this investment. Divided out over 3.7 million people, that means, on average, every year you don't lose nine hours of your life. And if you, if you translate that, and typically the translation is three times GDP per capita, that turns into a benefit of $2.58. That sounds cruel, but suddenly you have a sense of order of magnitude And if we've done our sums right, you get a sense of how much are we actually helping this girl and everyone else? But of course, this is not the only thing. We also avoid disease, uh, so we avoid the unpleasantness of being, uh, uh, being sick. Uh, there's, on average, 5.7 days that you sit on the can every year in, 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 in Haiti, and you avoid some of that. You also avoid some health care savings. Uh, sorry, you avoid some health care costs, uh, so that's healthcare savings. You also have productivity gain, because when you're not on the bathroom, when you're not sick, you can go and work. And also you get some productivity benefits in the sense that you, have to go f- uh, you don't have to travel as far in order to be able to uh, go to the bathroom. And then finally, you have some educational benefits. If you're a kid, you can actually go to school instead. And you also have some very tiny environmental benefits. Uh, so basically, that's about getting the fecal matter out into the field and use it as fertilizer that reduces nitrogen leakage and it increases yields. Overall, that sums up. To about $6.88. So we're the annoying guys that say, yes, this is a beautiful picture, but you also need to remember that the cost is about $9. The benefit, if you include everything, is about $7. And that's why we estimate that every time you spend a dollar on this, if you do it well, you will do 77 cents of good. That does not feel good. That does not make us feel good, but that was my entire point, to say this is not about the pretty pictures, it's about making sure that we do the right thing. I'll get back to this at the very end, but let's just remember this. So we're trying to find all the smart things, and there's a lot of smart things to do in Haiti, and that's why we possibly shouldn't be persuaded by the picture that makes us want to spend the money where the best picture is. So. The research that I'm going to show you stems from our attempt of uh, looking at what are the smartest targets for the world, 2016-2030. Uh, uh, so the UN wanted to replace its uh, Millennium Development Goals back from 2000 and, uh, sorry, from 1999, uh, which covered the first 15 years of the century. They were very, very simple, pretty smart. Uh, They simply said, reduce poverty, reduce hunger, uh, get all kids in school, uh, reduce child deaths, reduce maternal deaths, and get everyone water and sanitation. I've just said that's the whole thing, right there. Uh, But the problem was that the UN then wanted to say, we should redo that for 2016, 2030. Um, And that matters, because over those 15 years, we're estimating the total development budget for the world is going to be two and a half trillion dollars. So we're going to be spending two and a half trillion dollars. Surely we should try to get it right. Imagine if we could just change a tiny bit of that to be spent better. That could be a phenomenal outcome. That's what I'll show you towards the end of of the talk tonight here. So what they basically did was they ended up promising everything to everyone. Just to give you a sense, uh, the number of targets uh, in the Millennium Development Goals were 18 targets, there were 374 words. This time, the world has promised 169 targets with 4,369 words. I promise you, if you try to read them, you're going to fall asleep. Uh, and and the, ter- you know, the economists slightly spoofed them by saying these are the 169 commandments. Uh, you know, there's there's a reason why Moses came down the mountain with 10 and not you know, 169. And that's important because it tells us promising everything to everyone all the time everywhere. It's not a real promise. It's just simply, it makes us feel good. It's the kind of thing that sounds nice but if it's not actually gonna do the most good. I'm not sure we're doing the best thing we can. So we tried to get all of our research out to everyone. This is the East African. We wrote about all the smart things you can do everywhere. This was an introductory article. Then we wrote about uh, air pollution. Then we wrote about biodiversity. Then we wrote about climate change. This is just because it's in alphabetical order. It wasn't actually conflict and violence and so on. We got everyone in these areas to talk about what really works and what's important but likewise, we, pre- sorry, we presented a lot of evidence. And again, you can go to our website and see all these. This is just uh, on all the things you can do in health. Uh, and, and this is all the things that you can do, for instance, in conflict and violence and illicit financial flows and education and science and technology. There's many, many more uh, uh, studies. So there's about 1,800 pages of period material from 82 economists and 44 sector experts. but If you want to get people to read this, of course, it doesn't actually help to say, we have 2,000 pages here of uh, period material, would you please read that, sir, and and then make an informed decision? And that's why I'm so happy that all of you should have had this, because this is the short version of our book. We also have this coming out with Cambridge University Press, right? But this is the short version of it. It's just a one-pager. And that basically tells you all the smart things to do. So that's what I'm gonna show you up here. Uh, So you can also see, this is basically the result of one and a half years work for more than 100 academics. Uh, And everybody feels a little bad about the fact that you put it on one page, but that's the beauty of it, right? What you see here is all the interventions, and then you basically see how much bang for the buck do you get. The longer the line, the better. This makes it much, much simpler for everyone. To have this conversation. It would be very, very surprising if this is entirely true. It's not such that you can just say, oh, okay, so we just do the world by clicking sort in Excel and then we're done. That's not what we're saying. This is the economist's point of view on this. This is an efficiency conversation. Remember, for instance, there's no distributional conversation in this. So this only tells you one part, but an important part of the conversation right it's a little bit when you talk about the the menu it tells you that what's the price what's the size but we're the kind of guys that you know if you look over the menu we'd be like oh spinach that's really cheap and it's really good for you right but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're going to buy all the time you may decide to go with the caviar but at least now you know that the price is much much higher so what i'd like to spend the rest of my time really here is to walk you through this and give you a sense of why is some things really good, and why are some things not really good. And I'm going to use the European Song Contest uh, method here. So I'm going to start from the back and sort of build to the the inevitable conclusion. So I'm going to start from the back. So let me just show you some of the things that are in here, and try and give you a little bit of sense of why. So governance. Uh, so basically, corruption is a huge problem. We work with Susan Rose-Ackerman, uh, an economist from Yale University, and Mary Hildebrand from Harvard and Texas and A&M. Uh, Susan Rose-Ackerman was the first economist to point out that corruption probably costs the world a trillion dollars a year. It's a huge problem. Unfortunately, we don't have any good solutions. And so what they say is huge problem, no solutions. And our attempt would be to say, well as long as there are other huge problems where we have great solutions, then we shouldn't try to solve the stuff that doesn't work. So that's why we're saying, not that we don't think this is important, but simply that we don't have great solutions to corruption. So let's not spend our money there. One of the other things, poverty. You'd imagine, come on, are they saying poverty is not important? No, what we're saying is, Tackling poverty directly is often a really bad deal. For instance, if you try to get better social provisions, so you know, one of the things that a lot of people want to do is to say, let's get really great job protection rules so that people are well, they have, you know, they have minimum wages, that they have good job conditions, they have all kinds of things. That's great, but remember, only for the people who then get the jobs. And the problem is we have good data for instance in India and elsewhere that shows if you make these rules too high, you essentially push a lot of people back into the informal economy. And so it's great for the people who get the jobs, but it's actually worse for more people, which is why this is probably a bad deal. So again, the idea here is not to say, of course we all want to get rid of poverty, but there are actually much, much better ways to get Away from poverty, and I'll show that. that, So, that's obviously education, it's about getting uh, better job opportunities for women, and especially opportunities to inherit and run businesses. And of course, it's also about free trade and many, many other things. So, there are many indirect ways, and I'll get to another great indirect way of tackling one of the other problems I'll be talking about later. But the fundamental point is to say, don't do stuff that doesn't work, do stuff that does work, And so I'm going to be saying this quite a bit because we're in the bottom end of, uh, of this. Water and sanitation, that was what we were talking about before. Let me just take a look at this, right? Obviously, it's a huge problem. So we know globally that sanitation for the world, uh, uh, sanitation, lack of sanitation, kills probably 280,000 people each year. But with basic sanitation, we can only help about a quarter of those people. So it's not going to solve the problem, but it is going to make it better. So we have economists estimate the cost. And of course, this is an estimate because we're going to try and do this across the entire world. The cost is probably about $31 billion a year, so a substantial amount, given that we're spending about $140 billion in in total. But the benefits would both be time savings, and that actually turns out for most of the world to be the most important part. So you get time savings so you, can, you don't have to wait in line or uh, if you're in an urban area or go far, far out. And also it means that you have uh, uh, less opportunity, for instance, for rape for women. Uh, and th- then, of course, there's mortality in the disease part. We estimate the total benefit at about $91 billion, and that's why we get a benefit-cost ratio of about three. So it's okay, but it's not phenomenal. It's much better than Haiti, mostly because Haiti is incredibly expensive, so everything you do and also because we're only looking at urban sanitation in Haiti, not rural sanitation where it's cheaper and hence probably a better deal. So if we move on, air pollution, I'll I'll actually get back to that when we get to energy, Uh, then climate change obviously is something that gets a lot of people's attention. Uh, So let me just uh, give a brief sense of why is they're both a pretty bad idea and a pretty good idea. So if you look at climate, uh, the two degree target, uh, our economists set that as a bad idea. That's not because they're saying it's a bad idea to try to do something about global warming, but it's that the two degree target, uh, which actually is not really well founded, it's just simply uh, there's been some research that indicates where does that come from, it probably comes from uh, a research result from the 1980s uh, about a specific species of uh, plant, uh, how, how well it could handle temperature rises on a sea lake. Uh, but you know, who knows? The point is that they say the cost of achieving the two degree target is about a thousand billion dollars, or about a thousand trillion, uh, but if you had a target of just 3 degrees instead. You'd cut off the really dangerous part, but you wouldn't cut as much off, so you would have some damages. But it would also be much, much cheaper, so the cost would only be about 40% or $40 trillion. Yet the benefit of going all the way to 2 degrees is only a tiny bit more, so you'll avoid About $100 billion in damages around the end of the century. So you'd essentially be paying $60 trillion now, these are discounted dollars, in order to avoid a fairly small amount of extra damage by the end of the century. That's a bad deal. That's why they're saying, well, we should probably go for something like 3 degrees. They're not committing to a 3-degree target. They were basically trying to tell the UN, don't do the 2-degree target. Maybe say you know, 2.5 or 3 or 3.2 or whatever that number is, but that's a much, much harder conversation to have. But don't just say 2. Uh, the other bit, green energy research and development, a phenomenal idea, Uh, This is what Bill Gates and many others are pushing for. Our research shows that basically there's a dramatic underinvestment in green energy R&D right now. Uh, We have been languishing compared to healthcare and many, many others. If we invested about $100 billion a year, that's a six-fold increase of what the world is spending now. The cost across the century, because you have to ramp it up, would be about $1,600 billion uh, discounted back till today. But the avoided climate damage and the avoided policy cost would actually be in the order of $18 trillion. And that's why we find every dollar spent would do $11 of good. So again, the point here is simply to say it's not like there's good and bad policy areas. they are good and bad policies. And so one of them, the two degree target, is probably a bad idea. The dramatically ramp up green energy R&D is probably a great target. And that's why we have the very small one, the red one, and the very long one. So that's really where I want to go. Uh, let me just move on to energy, and then we'll also get back to the uh, to the air pollution. As you can see, there's anything from really bad ones to pretty good ones up there. So let me just, again, go through them. Uh, if you take a look at what are some of the things you can do, the, the UN is very gung-ho on getting more renewable energy. So the target was at the time we did this, they've actually just made it substantially increase. uh, But at the time we did this, uh, they said the, the target was double renewable energy. That sounds great. And yes, there are lots of benefits. We actually estimate the benefits per year would be in the order of $415 billion. That's not Primarily for what you think, namely that it's climate benefits, though there are some climate benefits. The vast amount of benefits come from the fact that a lot of poor people have very little energy access, so getting more energy access is a really, really good idea. The problem is that doing this over the next 15 years is going to be extraordinarily costly. And so we estimate the total cost is going to be about $514 billion. Spending $500 billion on doing $400 billion worth of good is not a particularly good idea. Yes, it does do some good, but you're basically only doing 80 cents uh, back on the dollar. If you look at some of the other things, uh, double energy efficiency, we know from Europe and many other places, this is a pretty good idea. The costs are substantial, but the benefits are even more substantial. The benefit cost ratio is about three. Universal energy access, obviously, this would be an amazing thing, but also remember, this would be extraordinarily costly. Uh, So, you know, basically take up the entire development budget of the world just to achieve that. But again, we're not saying that we should do all of that. We're simply making the sense. But the benefit would also be extraordinarily high. And so the benefit cost ratio would be seven. So this is really just a way of getting our sense of what works and what doesn't. Let me just show you two more things. Indoor air pollution is one of those incredibly boring things that most people have never heard of. It just happens to be the world's deadliest environmental problem. When you ask people what's the most deadly problem, they'll typically say water and sanitation or global warming or something like that. But it's actually an order of magnitude off. Uh, Global warming kills 141,000 people, according to the World Health Organization. Water and sanitation probably kills about 400, 450,000 people per year. But indoor air pollution kills 4.3 million people. It's one of the deadliest killers in the world. Why? That's because. Almost 3 billion people, so almost half this world's population, cook and keep warm with dirty fuels, typically wood, cardboard, dung, whatever they can get their hands on. And that means the indoor of most places in the third world. If you go out in rural areas, the indoor air, where a lot of people live perhaps a third of their life, is 10 times more polluted than the outdoor of Beijing. How come you only hear about the Beijing? That's, of course, because that's where the journalists are. That's where the journalist children are. That's where the good pictures are. But unfortunately, the other is actually more important. Uh, World Health Organization estimate it's the equivalent of every one of these almost 3 billion people smoking two packs of cigarettes every day. So not surprisingly, yes, that's really, really dangerous. Now, how can you tackle it? Well, the long-term solution is to make these people rich. So you know, I, I assume nobody here is so poor that you actually have open fires indoors, right? That's exactly the point, right? You don't do that when you get rich. But indoor air pollution is incredibly important, and we can do something about it. We can get better uh, cooking stoves, to about 30% of the world's uh, people who need it, about 780 million people. That means that they won't won't get as much air pollution. There's still going to be air pollution, but slightly less because it's more efficient. They don't have to spend as much money on wood, or they don't have to spend as much time collecting the wood, and they can also actually cook faster because it's a more concentrated heating source. So we estimate the cost is about $11 billion a year, but the benefit is about $161 billion, so the benefit cost ratio is 15. And also get rid of su- fossil fuel subsidies. They're just stupid. Uh, you know, in, in Venezuela, for instance, uh, they pay. I mean, there's a lot of things that are not right in Venezuela, but but uh, but you know, they 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 subsidize gasoline at 92%. I'm not actually sure what it's like. This is these numbers a year old, and they yeah, who knows? Uh, but uh, 92%. Uh, th- that of course means it's incredibly cheap to get gasoline. But you know, uh, it's sold as a subsidy for poor people. But of course, it's not. It's mostly a subsidy to rich people because you have to have a car in order to enjoy it, or to really enjoy it. And so it's a subsidy to have people drive too much, and pollute too much, and congest too much. So it's a very, very good thing to get rid of. It costs 20% of uh, Venezuela's uh, 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 government expenditure. And of course, those could be spent much, much better in health or education or something else. So that was a big thing on energy. Let me just talk a little bit about some of these others and then I want to move on to some of the top ones. Conflict and violence. we didn't do a particularly good job on how do you tackle conflict and violence. We have some good estimates, uh, but it's actually something where there's a lot of research lacking. but we did do some studies that showed and we did the first cost study on violence against women and children and they're amazing as sounding and a little very, very depressing. Uh, So with U.N. numbers, we estimate every year 309 million women are beat by their domestic partner so bad that it would be a criminal act in the U.S. We estimate the total cost of that is $4.3 trillion, so about 5% of global GDP. That's a huge problem, again, one that's very, very overlooked. And 5% of GDP is the equivalent loss of how 309 million women have to suffer every year. Also, every month, not every year, every month, 280 million children are being severely beaten by their parents. So, be- so much beaten, though, would be a criminal offense in the U.S. That's a terrible outcome, and that's un- incomprehensible, really. Uh, so the point here is, again, to remember... That if we could do something about that, actually, I should just tell you that uh, out of these 280 million kids that are being beaten every month, uh, a quarter of them, the person that are beating them only stops when the implement with which they beat them breaks. So, and we estimate that cost $3.6 trillion for the world. So there's a huge problem here and a problem that we haven't really seen. So let me just take you through this. So if you look, now we were talking about conflict and violence. Uh, Infrastructure is right above, and infrastructure is basically the idea of broadband dramatically increases growth. So if you get more broadband, you'll also slightly increase the growth rate, and that's actually a really good deal for most countries. If you look at biodiversity above that, there's a very surprising thing, half coral reef loss, and that'll actually do $24 worth of good. So that's an amazing outcome. So half coral reef loss is an amazing outcome why? Well, partly is it is we're only we're setting ourselves a fairly limited uh, target. We're not saying get back all uh, coral reefs. We're saying there is going to be loss of coral reefs, but we can reduce that loss by half, because half of what's going to be lost over the next 15 years is something that's very easily manageable. It's basically stopping people dynamite fishing and cyanide fishing. That's obviously very bad for the reef, and it's not all that great for the fishermen. But if you do that, not only will you get biodiversity benefits, but you'll also get benefits in some other ways. You'll get benefits in the sense that if you have a healthy reef, they produce more fish, and that means that you get more fisheries. That's great for fishermen all across the world. So that's really, really useful. And then you also get more tourism. So when you add up all those benefits, you not only get more biodiversity, you get more fish, so that's food for kids, and you also get more tourism, so that's higher income. All of that added up because it's also very cheap. You do $24 worth of good. Uh, uh, the, uh, um, Santos, the president of Colombia, is very enthusiastic about this whole uh, uh, process. And he's mentioned this a bunch of times when they started making new marine resources. So you know, again, it's something that's being used in real policy. If you take a look at education, We find typically, and a little depressingly, right, because I am assuming almost everyone in here is really well-educated, so we all tend to believe that the answer to anything has to be more education, right? Uh, But the reality is that it's really hard typically to convert money into better educational outcomes. It's very easy to waste it, but it's really hard to actually do it well. And that's why we find typically that most educational impacts are not all that great, but one stands out, and that's... Preschool in sub-Saharan Africa, there's almost no preschool, there's only about 20% preschool. We're uh, talking about tripling that to about 60%. That would be a phenomenal impact. Why is that so much better? Well, partly, preschool is much cheaper. You can have cheaper teachers, you can have more kids in the class, and then you also get a longer time frame on which it works on these kids, so you can actually have more years of benefit that comes in. And what happens when you get preschool is very often that you end up with generating a lifelong yearning to learn so that these kids later on in their lives will take one or two years more than they otherwise would have done and hence become much more productive. But I want to talk about food right after because that's actually a surprising solution to the educational issue. Why is that? Well, nutrition is obviously crucially important in many ways. But there's another way that this turns out to be much, much more important. We know that if you get good nutrition to small kids, zero to two year olds, that means that their brains develop more so that when they go to school, they learn more. And so the theory was, when they come out, they'll be more productive. That's how economists evaluate the benefit of education. (coughs) But now we actually know, because there's an amazing study that was done in Guatemala it started back in the 1960s. So in the 1960s, some researchers went down to Guatemala. They found two small, two small rural villages and fed the kids there well. Then they found two other small rural villages nearby. And you can kind of hear where this is going, right? They fed the kids really badly. Uh, this is the 60s you could get away with that, right? They gave them sugar water. But the amazing thing is our research has now gone down and refound those kids. They're now in their late 30s, early 40s. They re-found about 2,000 kids that are well-fed and about 1,500 that weren't. Amazing difference on almost all accounts. And this is pretty much a controlled experiment, right? They have better lives, they have better marriages, they have fewer kids. If they're women, there are fewer miscarriages. But crucially, the theory that we had was that they'd be better able to go to school. And that was indeed what happened. They had longer school, they'd learnt more, during each one of those years. And if they had avoided becoming stunted, which is the best way of uh, indicating that you're, uh, that you're malnourished, if they avoided being stunted, they had, on average, 60% higher wages. Phenomenal change. Of course, this goes on. They'll ne- now bring up their own kids better, and hence make sure that they are better fed, they are better schooled, and start this virtuous circle. So what we find is, instead of when you talk about education, people typically say, ah, there's a school and there's a teacher. And you think, what can you do about the school? It turns out you can do very little. Indonesia in the 1990s doubled the number of schools in a decade, doubled them. And the difference was, the the outcome was that they increased attendance by one percentage point. So yes, a lot of kids now don't have to walk as far to their school. That's probably good. But it was really, really tiny. Most of the impacts that we do in schools turn out to be very useless. Likewise, if you spend money on teachers, it turns out to be really, really hard to get teachers to teach better by just giving more money. But we often forget that there's a third component, right? The student. If you make the student smarter, and we can do that with food, then you can actually make a dramatic outcome. So what we did for Guatemala, we found the average cost, and this is for the world, is $97 to feed a kid two years well. That's reasonable. This is including distributional costs. And the benefit is that they, on average, get higher wages. If you discount that over their entire lifetime, the average benefit is $4,365. So that's why every dollar spent will do $45 worth of good. That's why this is such an amazing outcome, because we have a better way to tackle schooling. So you know, con- counterintuitively, we say, if you want to help schooling, don't th- look at schools, because that's really hard. Typically, try, don't look at teachers, because that's really hard. But there's a phenomenally easy first way to do that, namely invest a lot more in nutrition for kids. So let me move on and look at health. There's, as you can see, lots of health. We work with Dean Jameson from the University of Washington, who has written the book together with a lot of other researchers on disease control priorities for the World Health Organization. And these are just some of the many, many, many things they've looked at. I'm just going to look at one thing, tuberculosis, because tuberculosis is the world's leading killer now, uh, infectious disease killer. Uh, It's not HIV. It's not malaria. It's tuberculosis. Uh, Yet... HIV has much, much better press in so many different ways. So we estimate, actually, HIV probably takes up about 25% of the health budget, whereas tuberculosis only gets 4%. Tuberculosis is boring, right? Every time I write an op-ed and try to get it into paper, people are like, oh, could you write something about climate instead? And, and, and you know it's just depressing that that's the way it is. But of course, what we have to say is this is actually a really, really good intervention. So again, bear with me, because I'm just going to show you a little bit how we do this. Uh, There's a lot of latent tuberculosis, so things we don't know, and so when we do screening for all the people who didn't know that they had tuberculosis, it costs about $1,600 for every case found, and we'll end up with about 2.7 million cases, and that will cost $4.3 billion dollars. Then we can treat the vast number of people who have TB, who knows it comes uh, to, to get uh, a test and then get drug. Uh, that costs about $387, so only about $400. Uh, and there's almost 6 million cases. That turns out to be about $2.2 billion. Then there's the multi-drug resistant, which, of course, you also have to treat, although that's much, much more costly. So that's more than $3,000 per case. But fortunately, there's many fewer cases. There's about half a million. All of that turns into about 9 million cases each year that we can treat, and that's 1.8, uh, sorry, 1.8 million deaths. So the total cost is about $8 billion annually, or about $900 per TB case uh, averted. The benefit is that these people, on average, live 20 years longer. Again, we estimate the value of each of these at $3,000 per disability adjusted life year, or basically per life year avoided. So that turns out to the median benefit is about uh, $40,000. At a cost of $900, that's why we get the benefit cost ratio at 43. Again, an amazing investment and one that we should be doing much more. So as you've seen these, We've looked at the health. I'm just going to show you two other things, and then I'll move uh, to the final sort of observations, and we'll get to your questions. If you look at gender, we find that uh, uh, family planning turns out to be a phenomenal investment. Um, So there's 215 million women who still don't have access to contraception. There's a lot of women who don't have access to this. To achieve, to get that, will cost about $3.6 billion to get access. Uh, But the benefits will be multiple. First of all, we know that there will be fewer kids dying. That's basically because you can space your kids better. If you have contraception, you don't have to have them right when it's harvest, for instance, where we know that there's a much higher mortality rate for children. It also means that fewer moms are going to die, about 150,000 fewer moms. And we also have about 600,000 kids who are not going to lose their moms. That we didn't actually price, because we don't know how to price it. And that's one of the things that you could say, and you can say this in a lot of different cases. If anything, some of these numbers are probably underestimates. That, in total, adds up to about $145 billion a year in benefits. But that's not the only thing, because when you get fewer kids and you have more productive moms, that means that you end up with fewer dependents, fewer young dependents. You still have few old dependents. You have more people in the working age. That means you have higher economic growth. That's what's known as the demographic dividend. That was what China essentially did in a very sort of on steroids kind of way when they only had a one-child policy. You grow enormously because everybody is working. We estimate that demographic dividend at about $300 billion. So in total, the benefit will be about $430 billion at a cost of just $3.6 billion. And that's why we find getting contraception to women, all the women who don't have it, would probably generate $120 worth of good for every dollar you spend. That's a phenomenal outcome. That's definitely something we ought to be doing. The last bit, sorry, I just before before we move on, I just want to, you know, if you look at the gender, sorry, I can't make it go down. But if you look at the reduced child marriages, on the other hand, that yeah, that amazes a lot of people. They're like, what? We're saying that's a bad idea to reduce child marriage? Do you like child marriages? That's not what we're saying. Right? <laughs> we're simply trying to point out that. Although it's a very, very worthy goal to want to reduce child marriages, but just saying we want to reduce them doesn't typically work. There's been lots and lots of efforts in trying to criminalize. It's criminalized almost everywhere, and it still happens lots and to get information out to people and say, you know, you should really not marry off your daughter. And people are like, really? (laughs) They, They know the social customs much better. It's not about trying to stop that directly, it's about the indirect route. So getting better education for women, getting better opportunities for women to work and to inherit and to participate also politically, so that it's a lot of indirect ways that will make it more worthwhile for these kids, and especially for these women, Uh, to be able to stay in school instead of getting married. But the direct route, just simply trying to work on reducing child marriages, almost invariably fails. And that's why we end up saying that that's a bad deal. The last bit I just want to talk about is trade. So trade, a, a, a successful Doha, turns out to be a phenomenally good investment. Again, what we find is if you look at what's the cost of Doha round, well, to get, I mean, most people have forgotten we were trying to negotiate a Doha round. But if you run the models, the cost of doing this, well, it's hard to say. It's not just the uh, bureaucrats. It's clearly something else that's making a lot of people not wanting to have this free tre- trade deal. We've estimated that at the cost of keeping the Western ha- farmers happy, because they have typically and historically been the ones that have been trying to avoid having uh, a free trade round uh, succeed. So basically paying off more Western farmers with more money. So $250 billion. But the benefits are phenomenal. Not only if you do the standard uh, uh, static models from the World Bank, we find that the benefit, that's basically the benefit from you can produce something and I can produce something else and if we trade we get a little richer because we're both better off because you're better at doing one thing and I'm better at doing something else. That's the static benefit. That's about $100-$150 billion. But there's also a dynamic benefit and we've seen it in almost all countries. If you start opening up your trade, you get more competition, you get more skills, you get more ability. You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. So overall, you end up having a higher growth rate. And if you incorporate that, the global models from the World Bank indicate that we would get on the order, over the next 15 years, on the order of $500,000 billion richer. Uh, We thought, you know, Being the nerds we were, we thought this was just a really cool number to show the journalists. It turns out that that's just too many zeros. Uh, So they had no idea what we were saying. They were just sort of glazed over. Uh, So we we tried to say $11 trillion. That worked a little better per year in 2030. Even better and even clearer, this means on average, the average person in the developing world in 2030 will be $1,000 richer. That's an amazing outcome, and that, of course, means we'll lift out a lot of people. We estimate about 160 million people will be lifted out of poverty extra, from where we're already expecting that there'll be fewer people in poverty in 2030, but we'll lift another 160 million people out of poverty. And that's why we say if you spend $250 billion, but you get $500,000 billion back, You've done $2,000 back in the dollar. That's a really good deal. Again, it's unclear if could you go out and get that deal? No, probably not. Because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like building a bridge. It doesn't help you build half of it. Right? You really need to get all the way. But if we could get our world leaders to think about that, and I, I realize you guys have a problem with that right now. But, <laughs> but making this point would make it easier. right? And that's really what this is about. That's why, we do these, uh, th- that's why we do this overview. right? We basically try to make this easy for people to see where can you do a lot of good and where can't you. This is not the same thing as saying pick the spinach and pick the spinach every time. Right? But it's about getting people to move up to do more of the really smart stuff. So let me just show you what we found for the uh, United Nations, for the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. This is sort of our money graph, but it takes a little bit of of showing, so I'm just going to walk you through it. There was 169 targets. So if we did all 169, and remember, this is a back of the envelope, and I don't think there's any other way to do it. So we're estimating, what if you spent a dollar across all 169 targets equally? And that may not make entirely sense because some of them you can fill up much quicker than others. But bear with me; it gives you sort of the blunt, the uh, the the uh, the 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 thrust of the argument. So, if we had 169 targets here, we estimate, on average, if you spent a dollar across all 169 targets, you would then do about seven dollars worth of good. That's actually pretty good. You'll end up doing seven dollars of good for every dollar spent. But of course, remember, this requires you to do all the right things and do it all the right way. But it's really carried through by a few targets that are phenomenally good. Then there's a lot of targets that are sort of so-so, and then there's some targets that are actually bad. But if you do it across all of them, you'll end up with seven dollars per dollar spent. But notice what happens. If you cut it back, I've put all of the uh, the targets ordered by efficiency. So if you go down and say, instead of having 50 targets, try and just have 40 targets. Sorry, instead of have 169 targets, try just to have 40 targets. What happens then? Then for every dollar spent, you'll do $21 worth of good. You will just have tripled the amount of good you do for every dollar. And remember, we're talking about $2.5 trillion. That's pretty cool if you can triple that, right? What we actually ended up saying was, no, you should just do 19 specific targets. And you can go on our websites to look at what that, those are. But it's basically the most effective ones that we've been going through. If you did that, we estimate every dollar spent would do $32 worth of good. You'd more than quadruple the benefit of what the world would be doing. So again, let me just put this in, in context. If we're going to be spending $2.5 trillion dollars per year, sorry, over the next 15 years. We estimate, you know, the $7 back on the dollar, this will do $17.5 trillion of good. That's great. Thank you, world. You have really helped. But if we'd spend it in the best possible way, we could end up do $80 trillion of social good. We could do $62.5 trillion more good. And that's where I mean you and us, All of us can try to make our policy leaders spend the money such that we could do much, much more good than even Bill Gates would do. Every year the world spends about $200 billion to do good. That's about 135 from public uh, spending and about 65 from philanthropy spending. So about $200 billion. This might do, at $7, again, $1.4 trillion worth of good. If we did it smartest, we could do $6.4 trillion worth of good. We could have done $5 trillion better every year. But the real crux here is to say that's not going to happen, right? We're not magically suddenly going to make everyone rational. There's all kinds of reasons why we do the wrong thing. That picture of the girl from Haiti, you remember? That's one of them, and there's many, many, many reasons. But by making this argument, by having this conversation, by showing this evidence, that there are some places where you can just do a little good and there are some places where you can do amazing amounts of good. We can push people a little bit. We can give tailwind to all the good ideas and we can give headwind to the bad ones, right? So I'm simply making the very simple argument of saying, if we could change just 1% of the spending that the world do, both from USAID and from all the others in the other countries and from all the philanthropists from Bill Gates and onwards, If we could change that just 1% from being just sort of mediocre to being amazing, we could do $50 billion of social good each and every year. And that's the real power of this argument. That's what I'm hoping, and that's what all of the people that I work with is hoping. So please bring this along and you know, discuss it with all your friends. And I, I showed this to, uh, to uh, Mike Bloomberg at one point, uh, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, I went through it with my, you know, with my pencil and wrote all the stuff that we spend money on. And I sent it back to my research department to ask him why we aren't spending more on the long lines. And I was like... Right? This is exactly the kind of conversation we're going to... And of course, they're not going to suddenly just spend on the really long lines, but possibly they're going to do a little more good. So when you see this picture, remember that, yes, I want to give money to her. But we have to remember that she's not the only one we're trying to help. We're not just trying to help the ones that got photographed. And we're not just trying to help her in the way that she's being photographed. So yes, if we prioritize, we may actually end up in a situation where she might not get clean water first. But if we prioritize, she'll get so many other things. She'll get better nutrition. She'll get better school. She'll get better health. She'll get safer birth. She'll get higher income, less violence, hopefully. She'll get less air pollution, more energy, and more rights. And that's really what we have to remember. This is not about doing what feels good. This really is about making sure that we do the smart, nerdy things, yes, but the things that'll actually end up helping both her and everyone else in the best possible way. Thank you.
0: Um, poor Xander, a lot of great questions coming in, you sifting through a lot of them. So uh, we'll start with one which has come up in many different forms, which is what's the discount rate you're working on for all of this, uh, playing out these yes. costs and so, benefits over time?
2: So we work with two discount rates, a low and a high, so we work with 3% and 5%. And you can see all of the material on the website. When I show you this, I'm basically showing you the median of it, so it's like 4%. Um, we should also just remember this is very much a first-world discount rate. Uh, when we went to Bangladesh, which is where we had done our first project, they were like, what? 3%, 5%? And they ended up wanting 10%. Uh, now we're doing the uh, the study in Haiti, and they were like, 10%? Uh, they it 20%, which basically means you don't care about stuff after a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but. You know, if you know Haiti, uh, uh, that's perhaps not a totally unrealistic expectation, uh, explanation of, of of how Haiti works. We ended up using a twelve percent. So we use the three, five, and ten in Bangladesh or twelve in Haiti.
0: How does this affect some of the? The question includes this. Some of the really longer term issues like climate change which really plays out over many decades whereas many of the things you're looking at are pretty immediate problems yes. with immediate solutions. Yes. So uh, it's it's
2: very clear that this would shift, you know, the higher the uh, the uh, the discount rate. So basically for the people who don't know what discount rate is, it's basically a way to uh, prioritize how you uh, uh, to to weigh the how you prioritize the present versus the future. So if you have a high discount rate, you mostly care about the present. If you have a so low discount rate, you more care about the future and less about the uh, the current uh, uh, issues. Uh, so what we do is uh, we do both the 3 and the 5%. I think there are very few people that would argue you should have something substantially under 3%. Mm-hmm. And likewise, there's very many actually that would argue you should have something above 5 Most finance mm-hmm. ministries have 7% or even 9 or 8%. Uh, So if anything, we're skewed slightly to the lower end. So in that sense, we're probably, if anything, overestimating the benefit-cost ratio of climate. You need to go down to like 1% or something to, for instance, make some of those, uh, you know, the current sort of proposals that we're doing in climate uh, work out.
0: I wonder how the 10,000-year time frame works out. Oh, yes, uh, I guess zero uh, percent is the only number that you can sort of work. That, with <laughs> that is entirely right.
2: But then, you know, economists would tend to say, mm-hmm. and I think that has some validity, uh, that if you have a discount rate of zero percent or very close to zero, uh, that basically means you only care about the future. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you look, uh, they did some studies. For instance, on uh, Nicholas Stern did a review of, mm-hmm. on the economics of his of, uh, of climate, where he used a zero point one percent. Uh, and that turns into meaning that you need to spend ninety-seven point five percent of your income for the future. That basically means I'm just going to eat porridge and I'm going to leave everything for the future. The problem with that argument is tw- two things. Partly that that's what the next generation is going to do too, right? So that's a lot of porridge and a lot of money for the, the for the future when they're going to be much much better off. But the second thing is we don't act that way. Yeah, you know, right. most most countries, most people spend about fifteen percent on the future, which is much more equivalent to five or even higher. And that means, basically, most of us, by our actions, show that we say we care a little bit about the future, but not all that much.
0: Also, when you look at solution space, as technology gets better and various other things, communications get better, cell phones get distributed, and so on, presumably the costs of solutions as you guess at them now will, Probably keep coming down. Is that your experience? You've been looking at this for how long now?
2: For for 12 years. Mm-hmm. That would probably be true. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's a it's a totally general uh, uh, position. The other thing I'd say is also uh, and and obviously you know as as you might imagine we we're, we're trying to square the circle between a lot of different disciplines and they all work on slightly different approaches. So we try to uh, standardize as much as we can. We have the same value of life, the mm-hmm. same discount rate, the same uh, growth expectancy. Mm -hmm. and all these different things but you know honestly they they each leave out different things and we try to get them to qualitatively assess how much that is but one big thing that they leave out is when we talk to climate people and education people because they are the ones that are used to having long discount rates you know Mm -hmm. if you invest in education you really only get the benefit in 20 30 40 50 years Mm -hmm. Uh, so they know this Mm -hmm. but if you talk to doctors they don't care about twenty or fifty years down the line because they're like, hey, there's so many bodies on the table after ten years. So they pretty much stop after that. And so one of the things that we I would very much like to see, and I suspect is true, but I don't know because we can't get them to do it, is that if you lowered the benefit cost, sorry, if you lowered the discount rate, mm-hmm. you'd get climate would be better, mm-hmm. education would be better but chances are that tuberculosis and everything else would also be better because suddenly you get many, many more people not dying, Mm -hmm. and hence you would make sure that they would be richer so that they would not have their kids dying, and so you'd get these dramatic generational effects that we're totally missing right now because the doctors are, like, cutting it off after 10 years.
0: There you go. Well, you you are pointing out that uh, you're sort of generalizing ferociously, and you need to in order to get these comparative numbers. And yet, as I gather, you've done work now. You're during, currently in Haiti and have done work recently in Bangladesh. Can you spell out a little bit about what uh, you were telling me earlier work in Haiti means? What's, what's, what have you actually been doing there? Yeah.
2: So, so uh, you know, when you do this globally, uh, I think it's intellectually interesting. What's the world's biggest issues? Where should we be focusing our money? But everybody, when we present it to them, they're like, I don't live in the world. Mm-hmm. And yes, you do, but you know, in some ways you, we always feel like, well, that might be true because somewhere else, You know, so if you show this in India, they say, oh, that's China, or if you show it in China, they say, oh, that's Latin America or something else. So in some sense, doing this in individual nations is much, much more relevant for these nations. So in Haiti, uh, we're working with everyone uh, so from government to, uh, uh, to uh, civil society to academics uh, uh, and, and to, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, NGOs. And we asked them in all these different areas, what are the important issues in Haiti? Uh, so one of the things that came up was, I, I had no idea, lots and lots of people die in accidents. It's a really dangerous country. About every 20th death is due to accidents. And so the Haitians want to have an ambulance service. There's almost no ambulances. So they want a national ambulance service. So our economists did that, and they looked at it. Yes, it's very expensive to get so many ambulances that you can get out everywhere in Haiti. But it's also really good, because you'll actually start saving people's lives. So we estimated that getting ambulances everywhere would probably do $3 back in the dollar. That's pretty good. But then we also looked at, what happens if you only do this in urban areas? because it's really hard to get all these ambulances out in rural areas. If you save it only in urban areas, you can cut down the number of ambulances by 75%, and you can still save the vast majority of the people. So suddenly, the benefit-cost ratio is eight. That's much better. But then they also said, what about, how about you know, cutting away the ambulances? Because there's so many people dying, what you really need is paramedics, and the real big cost is mm-hmm. the ambulances. What if you just had the paramedics? then the bang for the buck is 16. Again, remember there's some distributional issues here. If you're out in the countryside, you'll feel screwed about this, right? Uh, of course, we would argue that there's probably other things people in the countryside would rather have than ambulances, but the po- whole point here is to start having that conversation, and by getting these numbers, you can really get a sense of, of difference. So we've done a, a similar one, we're, we haven't, we're, we're still publishing in, 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 uh, in Haiti, but we've done this for Bangladesh, and we've gotten this in the hands of pretty much everyone in Bangladesh. It's mostly made by Bangladeshi economists, and you know, I was, it was surprised by some of the things that, 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 that are different. Actually, Actually, and I, can I just say this one mm-hmm. thing? Uh, we found one great solution for corruption, which I was really pleased. Uh, so it's really hard to find good uh, solutions for corruption globally, but we found this one for Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh spends a lot of money, like most developing countries, on procurement. So they spend mm-hmm. about a third of their government budget on procurement. Uh, you know, Anything from post-it notes to roads, but because roads are so much more expensive, it's mostly infrastructure. So that's about $7 billion to spend every year, and it's hugely corrupt. Uh, So they have this leftover from British uh, rule that you come, you have to hand in a sealed bid, a sealed envelope, in a specific government office. But of course, in the local corruption, they've already decided out there, you're going to get the bid. And what they do is they just put up goons outside that office, so you can't physically come in with your bid, right? Boom, you got the bid. Um, So what we tried to do was to say, what if you could have e-procurement? So we actually, our researcher, convinced the Bangladeshi government e- to have...
0: procurement electronic, sorry? online, digital... Online, main, yes, marketing. so essentially
2: eBay, right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, procurement. So we took 4% of Bangladesh procurement online for two years and looked at how much cheaper can we get it. Not only do you get better quality, you can get everyone per bid from all over uh, uh, Bangladesh, but the price decreased by almost 12%. Now, there's probably still corruption, but there's 12% less corruption. That's amazing. That's basically seven hundred million dollars for free in Bangladesh. Not surprisingly, the finance minister of Bangladesh think we're wonderful, you know, and, and so they're instituting this now in in the next year and a half. It, sure, it would have happened eventually, but by pointing out that this is a really, really good investment, they simply adopted
0: it faster. So, since you've now had the experience of comparing differences in Bangladesh and in. Uh, Haiti. What kind of things sort of turn out as uh, significant differences in those quite different places? I think they're the both developing world. Yes. They're both famously you know desperate, and yet they're different. Yes. I think the big difference is that
2: people have different conversations about what are their solutions. Hmm. So we find very clearly you know vaccines or uh, uh, immunization nutrition mm-hmm. uh, uh, so free trade uh, energy is mm-hmm. good some of these other things they're they are always good mm-hmm. but then you know in in, in Bangladesh you want to talk about ready-made garment that's where they've made most of their uh, their money uh, they want to talk about uh, uh, you know what do we do about child marriages some of mm-hmm. these other things that are very big in in Bangladesh there were also some things they didn't want to talk about for instance tuberculosis uh, every 11th death in Bangladesh, is due to tuberculosis, every 11th death. Yet most of the elite believe that they've fixed it hmm. because they have a great healthcare system, so if you get into the healthcare system, you get diagnosed, you get treated, and you survive. But a lot of people don't go into the healthcare system because there's a lot of stigma and you lose your income for about a year because you're sick. Hmm. Uh, and so you know, most people that are poor, will you know, when they start coughing, they'll just hope it goes away, which it does, but because you die. So the problem is that if you could avoid that, and we have some ways to do that, you can actually dramatically reduce and make life much better in many places. And that was one of the things. So Bangladesh now set aside more money for, for, for health care. But there are other things like, for instance, ambulances that I would never have dreamt of. Uh, 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 Haiti also has a big issue of civ- civic education. Uh, yeah. they've, they've had a lot of coups, they've had a mm-hmm. lot of sense, of th- there's That's a lack of sense thing, yeah. of cohesion in, 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 in Haiti, and so mm-hmm. by getting uh, a, a civics course mm-hmm. everywhere, uh, they, they have the idea that maybe this will make them much better off. So it's been a big part of the conversation, uh, and we've done a, a cost benefit. I can't tell you right now what it's, what it is, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, it'll help make that conversation. There's also, they want an army, uh, mm-hmm. they, uh, and again, I'm not going to get into that at all, but they don't have an army. They feel like they should have an army. It's a big thing in, in Haiti. And, and so we're trying to make a cost benefit analysis on that.
0: Wow. Um, cool. Some specific things. James Harbison asks: Can a well-run micro banking scheme lift poor out of poverty? We hear a lot about that.
2: Yes. So, uh, 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 so uh, uh, microfinance was a big thing, especially it came from Bangladesh. We worked together with BRAC, uh, mm-hmm. who is the originators of BRAC which is the world's biggest NGO. They have one hundred and ten thousand employees. Uh, they basically keep Bangladesh uh, very, very big. <laughs> yes, and they uh, they 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 do a lot of basic services in Bangladesh. Uh, and yet, when you look at the con- randomized controlled trial studies, they show that the extra benefit for more microfinance is not all that high. Now, mm-hmm. remember, we are only looking at the marginal change. We're not looking at, is it a good idea, that w- what we already have done, because we've already done it. We are using the policy-relevant question of saying, if you were going to spend an extra dollar, an extra billion dollars, so the next spending and that's the right one because that's what we're actually thinking about whether we should be doing and that turns out to be not all that great unfortunately and this is backed up by a lot of studies from from the randomized controlled trials there. so we probably you know uh, uh, taken up we've already plucked all the low hanging fruit and by now it's just sort of a medium range
0: so there's things going on in the developing world like urbanization is urbanization Uh, sort of turn up in your research as something to slow down, to encourage, to just prepare for, or what?
2: Yeah, we looked at it, the UN was also looking at it, it's really, really hard to both say, there's there's not that much great research on it, Hmm. and certainly what most of them say is that there's very, very little you can do about it. Yeah, you know, it's very mm-hmm. hard. Fundamentally, well, that's interesting. W- yeah. w- fundamentally, what you can do is to make sure that you have better planning, for instance, for mm-hmm. so you don't get uh, the the sort of very unorganized slums. And this is, you know, I'm I'm just talking mm-hmm. about sort of from China my general understanding. Them, everybody else does. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, but but fundamentally, it's it's very hard to see how you can spend money mm-hmm. and make this particular issue. Uh, 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 go away, if you will. Uh, obviously, some of the things that we're advocating for, for instance, high productivity in the agricultural sector, mm-hmm. which would be great for a country, would actually make urbanization worse, mm-hmm. because you'd have fewer people wanting to work in, in, the, uh, in agriculture.
0: And things like cell phones, which seem to have helped enormously and are sort of self-generating in yep. a way, and maybe there's really not that much to add from a, a philanthropic point of view or an aid point of view. But is there? Is that the kind of thing that's worth supporting or so we did watching? some
2: we did some studies. There's one I loved. You know, the idea of text messages for farmers, mm-hmm. uh, where you're being told now the weather is good to plant this mm-hmm. uh, this this kind of uh, uh, of, of um, product. What is it called? Uh, this crop. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and and you know some some of those kinds of and, and now is a good time to harvest and all that stuff. Turns out to not be very good. Uh, mm. It's not terrible, but it's like a dollar twenty-five or something. Uh, but if you look at the basic benefit on broadband, mm-hmm. that probably is good. Mm. Uh, well, partly because we know that it generates uh, uh, economic growth, mm-hmm. but also because it enables to have a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of government services online, mm-hmm. uh, and that means you know, one of the things that you lack in much of the developing world is just a birth certificate, just knowing that you, you, know, you have rights, mm-hmm. that you have abilities, and if you're online, it's much easier to get a birth certificate, uh, you know, then you can actually you know, just go to a, a local kiosk and get it, mm-hmm. instead of you having to go, you know, go to a, a, a regional center and wait in three days, that kind of thing.
0: So is this related to the question of, like, having an ID so that you can get bank loans and yes, things like that? Yes. Yeah. And then it sounded like in Bangladesh there was issues of where the property lines are and who actually owns right, stuff.
2: Right. So Bangladesh has a huge problem. Obviously, it's a very, very crowded country. It's, uh, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I still haven't found the American state, so I can't give you this, but it's three times the size of Denmark. Uh, and we're a small country, and uh, we have five million people in our country. Bangladesh has one hundred and sixty million people. Uh, so, as you might imagine, they're very, very tightly packed. They're the they're the most populated, densely populated country in the world, apart from city states like Singapore and stuff. Uh, so, land is at a premium. Mm-hmm. They have this old system back from the uh, from the English. Uh, where they write up all carefully all the land deeds in five different books. So if one burns, you still have the, uh, the other four. But the problem, of course, is that that's back from the time of the British. For, since then, that's diverged. So, so now you know, these five books tell five different, very different stories. Uh, we don't quite know, but people estimate that there's probably about ten times as much land in the books as in, in Bangladesh, <laughs> which is not a good outcome. That basically means if you're rich... You can afford to send people to all five books and get your deed right. But if you're not, you have no idea whether you really own the land. And so you don't really dare to try uh, to find out, because there's a good chance you're going to find out, I didn't own it. And so you underinvest in your land, and you have a harder time uh, uh, using it as collateral for loans.
0: And you think that can get get sorted out with a good, basically, online database and plenty uh, of bandwidth and
2: this there. is the smart guy yes this and that, and that was what the the economists looked at they said you know basically we should digitize this mm-hmm. there's going when you digitize it there's going to be a lot of court cases because everybody's going to realize they didn't own what they thought uh, <laughs> but afterwards <laughs> you're going to get much higher growth uh not much high growth but somewhat better mm-hmm. growth and so we actually find that this is a really good investment and again the finance minister uh, it, it was obvious to do the e-procurement because that's just more money for very, very little input. But this actually sustained a whole class of people who are probably getting a lot of small bribes from everyone. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be very, very controversial. But he actually said he was going to get rid of it in two years. So digitized the whole thing in two years. Now, there's a lot of uh, you know, pronouncements. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. But again, it's very likely that it's going to happen more. And again, that's simply because you can suddenly see and because you have that conversation, hey, this is a smart thing to do.
0: Do you get... You know, when one country like Bangladesh does something like that and gets things sorted out, are the other developing countries paying attention to things that work like that? Or is uh, it probably
2: have- way too little. But I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know the right answer to that. My sense is, you know, again, uh, we've tried to make this stories elsewhere, mm-hmm. and, and there's been some interest. But I think, you know, in in that way, you know, uh, in the in the uh, uh, in the idea space, we probably have to reinvent the wheel all the time over and
0: over again. Yeah, it's done locally then. Um, you mentioned that uh, it's hard to go at poverty directly, so Alex Whistler asked, can to say something about the experiment in Africa of just paying everybody in the village with, with money to see what yep, happens?
2: Yeah, that's a very, very popular thing, and again, mm-hmm. I would say it's a little bit like this. It's not a picture, but it feels right to a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. here in, mm-hmm. the, uh, in, in, in Silicon Valley kind of thing. There's a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about it. Unfortunately, if you look at the randomized controlled trial studies, it doesn't actually do very much good. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, not surprisingly, the value of a dollar is about a dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, <laughs> when you give a dollar away, you, hey, these guys got a dollar. That's great. <laughs> BCR but of one. The, but, yes. <laughs> but the problem is that you could have spent that on immunization and basically done, you know, $60 worth of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so contrary to what a lot of people would like this to be, that's, again, one of those places where we're annoying and saying, nah, no, no.
0: Probably not. So a question from Charles Franson, what do you think of GiveWell and other organizations that allocate donations to portfolios and nonprofits based upon the bang for your buck type of analysis?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I think they're wonderful. That's obviously what you should do. And they do something else that we don't do. Uh, They look at how can you actually get this done? Right, so they look at the actual organizations that are doing that. We're just simply saying tuberculosis is a good mm-hmm. thing to spend money on. But obviously, there's the whole implementation conversation. How do you do this? Mm-hmm. So in some sense, you could say our primary target is actually you know, USAID and mm-hmm. DFID and also the Gates of the world who are mm-hmm. spending their money directly. Uh, so GiveWell and others are basically telling all the rest of us, how should you spend your next $100 or uh, whatever you're going to write your check on?
0: So somebody who wants to actually start doing that, doing what they see in your list would do well with something like well? I think so. Are there others in that category?
2: I don't know that well enough. And I should also just make that, you know I, I think in general, the give well idea is good. I haven't looked at them that hard that I know, you know I, I can't vouch for their, mm-hmm. uh, for it seems like what they're doing is really good.
0: Give it a try and report back. Um, Art has a question, is, is there discrepancies between your rankings and other entities that do similar type of rankings? Lose your competition and yes, You, uh, how, how good are you they? would imagine that there were other people doing this,
2: right? But the honest answer is I don't know of anyone else. Uh, and, and that, you know, back when I, when I first started this, it, it just happened because I made a comparison between two different things, uh, two different ways that we spend money. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that was a neat comparison, but surely, you know, that's not the only two things you should compare. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to look up who else does, you know, what, mm-hmm. what is the ranking of the world? And surprisingly, there's nobody who's done this. And, and still after we've done this for 13 years, there's still no one else uh, that do this ranking.
0: Well, you have so, these meetings and these gatherings of economists and so on who sort through these things. Um, so are, are they being influenced by this framing to do more of what they do normally in this kind of uh, approach to things? I'm, 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 well, okay, what, so you you're, you're, you're not the only guy doing this analysis. Okay. Okay. You, you work with economists. Oh, sorry. And so on. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. So oh God. You, no. Yeah. Your I, I cohort. Just What's dis- your cohort up
2: to? Okay. Yes. So we work with uh, three hundred of uh, of the world's smartest economists. We work with seven Nobel laureates in economics. You can see them all on our website. So, fundamentally, when we go out and talk to people, uh, and you know, uh, so we typically sort of scout out an area and talk to, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the people there, and we very quickly end up with like everyone say, these are the three best people, and then we ask them, and you Mm -hmm. know, one of them can't do it because they have, you know, they have too much other stuff on their plate, and then one of the others say yes. But typically, almost everyone wants to do this. Why? Because, you know, as an academic, you love doing your work, but you'd also like someone to listen to it, and mm-hmm. Very rarely that happens. Uh, but what we're good at is basically to make sure that the the piece you write for us mm-hmm. will be heard by very, very many people and also a lot of influencers
0: so but I guess I'm asking about the influence on the influencers yes, Are, you know these characters come together, they think in these terms, they do the analysis, they're surprised by some stuff. Does that change how they do what they do in yes. the world?
2: Yes. Sorry, does it change the economists, or does it change the politicians? Does
0: it change the economists?
2: Does it, oh well, I mean, I, again, I, I mentioned James, uh, Dean Jameson who works for uh, the mm-hmm. University of Washington, who's done the Disease Priorities Pro- uh, Control Project for, for the World Health Organization for now mm-hmm. 15 years. Uh, and uh, he was very kind uh, last time we met at Harvard, uh, and, and basically said he thinks this is one of the, this is probably the most worthwhile thing he's done in his life. Uh, so, you know, I I, I would imagine, uh, but, you know, I think that's better th- to ask them. Right. Uh, but my, my sense is, uh, uh, you know, most economists think this is obviously the mm-hmm. kind of thing that you should do. Uh, when I tried to do the first con- uh, code-making consensus, the first prioritization, mm-hmm. um, I talked to a lot of people, and they were all like, oh, that sounds like a great idea, never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and So, you know, the sense mm-hmm. was that this is something somebody ought to do, but it's just too hard to do.
0: So now I'm looking for the BCR of your operation. Um, <laughs> what 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 kind of funding are you working with? Where is it coming from? Yep. Um, and then how does it get out to the world?
2: So obviously we've also done that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm really wow. You ask all the right questions. Uh, so so uh, uh, so. Fundamentally, uh, we get our funding. We used to get our funding from the Danish government, mm-hmm. uh, and now we get it from uh, typically from organizations. So the uh, uh, the Bangladesh was funded almost exclusively by the CNA Foundation. Mm-hmm. They you probably don't know them. They're cheap uh, uh, clothing retailers in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit like H and M. Uh, yeah, no, I shouldn't say anything. Sure, more. So, how much was but, there? But, but, they, but they they basically get their uh, their clothes, a lot of their clothing s- sewn mm. in Bangladesh. They mm. spend, I, as I understand, about fifty million dollars in Bangladesh every year, and they felt like. They would like some better uh, sort of uh, direction for where they would be spending their money. But the but the good thing about this, uh, and now mm-hmm. I sound like a commercial, but it is just for thirty seconds, right? The the good thing is that this doesn't just help them spend their fifty million dollars better. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, Bangladesh spends thirty billion dollars every year, mm-hmm. and if you could just change a little bit of that, and we did, mm-hmm. if, if with the international community spends about three billion dollars, we can change a little bit of that. I'm not quite sure we we change that. Then you can really make a huge difference. So you know, if you look at what we did with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, procurement uh, mm-hmm. in Bangladesh, just that. And if you just assume that we you know we put a few years forward, mm-hmm. uh, we basically estimate that we our project cost two and a half half million dollars in total for that whole project.
0: So that was uh, the cost. That was the
2: cost, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the benefit is in several. Billions of dollars for Bangladesh just for that one thing, and we estimate that there's probably a lot more things. So that's a very, very lowball estimate. So you know, a thousand dollars back in the
0: dollar or more. Okay, MBCR under a thousand, way to go. Yep. Um, and so. Uh, Getting toward winding up here, a good finishing question I think is Brian Schulman asks: What are the tangible benefits of, of your work so far? And this is looking you know across the board: the assessments of development goals, the notable partnerships, the, uh, large allocations from donors, the kind of thing that you just mentioned in Bangladesh. What are you seeing topiers on doing this stuff? What's happening in the world as a result of it? Well,
2: you know, clearly Trump isn't taking the advice, right? I mean the two top things is free trade and America contracept- first, hey. and contraception for women. Uh, and, and uh, you know, but, but again, you know, there's a lot of other things that happen beside us. We're, you know, we're a small academic outfit. I doubt that we're, you know, we're suddenly magically going to change the whole world. Uh, I think two things that we've well, taken away Bloomberg
0: from... Bloomberg said a nice thing. Oh, God,
2: yes, yes. yes the but, economist you know, I'm, said I'm, a nice thing. I'm still said. looking forward mm-hmm. to see him change all his priorities, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, we'll see about that.
0: But You but praise th- the Gates Foundation. Do they praise you, Is Um... A-
2: I think so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they certainly work with us. So, uh, but, 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 you know, but fundamentally, I think, I think we've learned two things. One is that, I was very sort of enthusiastic about the global thing because I think that intellectually makes a lot of sense for me. Mm-hmm. But I think increasingly I recognize that that it may sort of help set the overall tone of what we worry about and focus on. Again, remember indoor air pollution. You know, Most mm-hmm. people just never think about that. And by by stressing that, I think you can sort of help people, pull people out a little bit of our, our sort of normal, everyday experience of what matters and what doesn't. Uh, but But fundamentally... Most people live in individual nations, so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm increasingly, we're, we're still going to do the global one every four years, mm-hmm. uh, or so, so you know, every Olympic mm-hmm. year, uh, but the rest of the years we actually want to do this for individual countries, so we started with Bangladesh, and now we're in, doing Haiti, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be concluding that in one and a half months, so stand by. Uh, And and then we're moving to India. Uh, So Tata Trust and the Gates Foundation uh, is funding uh, first two states. So Mr. Mm -hmm. Radhan Tata is very enthusiastic about this. Uh, He wants to do it for all 29 states and the federal level in India. And I think that would be a phenomenal opportunity. Imagine Mm -hmm. uh, actually affecting the world's biggest democracy and having an an opportunity to help uh, uh, make better decisions for one25 Billion people, um, but I also really want to move to first world. You know, these are all third well, world well. countries, uh, and and so uh, I've, I've for a long time had a dream of doing this first in the U.S. But I think that's probably wrong, right? Because this, in some ways, you just have such a, a hyper partisan conversation that if we tried to do this, for instance, for the US, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it would just get drowned out. If, if mm-hmm. anyone dared to say, this is good, then the other side would sort mm-hmm. of automatically say, that's bad, right. uh, so possibly for a state. Uh, we're mm-hmm. also thinking about doing this for education, just in mm-hmm. the US. Uh, a lot of uh, philanthropists are spending money on education. Imagine uh, taking uh, so sort of 40, uh, 40 top ideas that people are talking about for education and then say, if you're going to spend an extra dollar, more likely, an extra billion dollars in this, mm-hmm. what does the evidence show that that will do a benefit? Mm-hmm. So you basically get the bang for the buck, this list, but just for education, just for the U.S. And again, it's just a menu. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that it doesn't tell you, so you can't just have that conversation and do the sort thing. But at least it'll start focusing people and saying, you know, do the top things in education. So that could possibly you, be is, really exciting.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. For a while, U.S. is off the board for that. Uh, what developed country would comes to mind that you would really like to just work so with? So I, I live in Prague now
2: uh, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. The, the Danish government we had an incoming center left government, and they ran on a promise to cut off my funding. Um, <laughs> so, so when they did, I uh, I moved to Prague, uh, and and uh, the Czech Republic is actually thinking about doing this. Uh, so that could be one. Uh, I think you know, honestly, I think. All countries could, yeah, I would love to see all countries in the
0: world do this. It would be Uh, fun to take a really socialist country and do this, and a really non-socialist country, you can probably think of a good one, uh, that, uh, not us, that, uh, you know, compare and contrast who can make better value of this kind of analysis of their situation. Yeah, I, I,
2: I would tend to think, like, first of all, I think if you tried to do that, that would be intellectually interesting, but the two countries would just care about what we found in their respective countries. Right, right. And also, I think most countries will just want to take, you know, there'll be some things that'll end up taking up, and there'll be a lot of things that they'll just leave on the on the plate. One other thing I found, you know, we've, we've worked a lot on, on getting this into newspapers, because at the end of the day, uh, and if any of you are, are academics, you know the sense, you know, there's a lot of incredibly interesting stuff that gets written and never read mm-hmm. uh, and and in mm-hmm. some way that's just you know terrible but you know if it's not read if it's not adopted by a lot of people it kind of didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Bangladesh, we, we, uh, we wrote up all of this research for Bangladesh in the biggest English-speaking, which is 250,000 copies, and the biggest Bangla-speaking, which is 10 million people. Uh, uh, you know, everything in Bangladesh is big. Uh, but, but, but the amazing thing is this got everyone talking, because then you know, there's an article about how do you do education in Bangladesh. If you're from Bangladesh, it's incredibly interesting. If you're not, it's probably not, right? But, but, the, but the point is, you want to read this. And then mm-hmm. there's, what can we do about infrastructure? And how much will that cost? How much good will it do? It's incredibly interesting. So we ended up writing uh, 24 articles in each one of those areas, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of other articles and other papers. We got everyone talking about this. Uh, everyone who's anything in Bangladesh has one of these, or at least they have gotten one. But I think I've, I've seen quite a, quite a number of them who still have them, because you'll, you know, if you're advocating one of these long lines, You'll constantly be saying that. And then sort of, you know, it catches on because then next time you want to do something of these, you're like, you know, they're going to ask you why do you want to do that? Yeah. So, 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 you know, you start having this conversation that is slightly more rational. And, and that was my my sort of end point. You also end up with a situation where journalists will now start asking this very, very simple question. Whenever a politician opens his mouth, you'll say, I'm sorry, sir, how much will that cost? And how much good will it do? And that'd be cool, right? Imagine if we had
0: that conversation more generally. So the, uh, you're looking at countries, these are countries that have diasporas. You're gonna work in India. Yes. India has yes. this huge diaspora of, people who've done very well all over the world, have money, they go back, many do. Uh, does that bear relation to how you would look at these developing countries that have, in a sense, a developed diaspora?
2: That's a good question. I haven't thought of it, but I'll definitely bring bring it along. Yeah. Has, I,
0: it would be interesting, sort of, to include that in the, in the way in the economic analysis. What those folks who went out and did yep. well—they they were based on probably some education, some other yes. opportunities yep. that you know made it happen. They didn't uh, cough themselves to death in a bad uh, fire in, inside the indoor pollution situation, and 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 so that must be part of the multipliers. But it's a loop, and. Figuring out how that loop plays would be fun yeah. to do. Yeah,
2: no, no, that's that's a very good point. I, I I would tend to say, and and this is one of the things that we do. That's I think crucial that this cannot be you know some white guy that comes in and tells you know Bangladesh or Haiti how they should do this. So that's why we work with everyone in. Haiti or in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. we have them do all the, all the, uh, uh, uh the, the, the right things to focus on. Uh, and, and, you know, neither in Bangladesh nor in Haiti, uh, did diaspora come up, but that's probably a, you know, because that I could very well be because there's a blind spot in those countries. You know, you've, you kind of don't think about all those mm-hmm. people because they left and you know, they should have stayed here. I don't know, but 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 uh, well, but there's another angle, which that is that
0: people in the country think about the country in a certain yep. way, as you saw in Haiti and in Bangladesh. People who grew up in the country and have left but still yes. have a very strong feeling for the country yep. think about the country in another way, probably a little closer to the way you think about it as a You're whole and well, how it yeah, bears yeah. relation to the yep.
2: rest of the yep. world. Yep. So uh, uh, we we're, we're funded by Canada in, uh, in Haiti. Uh, so uh, the Canadian uh, Development Agency, the uh, Global Affairs Canada, uh, sort of unofficially say that they've spent a billion dollars in Haiti and, you know, they're not quite sure what they got for that. Um, so that's why they're really frustrated about mm. uh, and they want to do better uh, in Haiti. Uh, but we've heard, I have no idea whether this is true, but, you know, it seems to be the, the case that uh, Trudeau is actually really interested in, the, in this project. And that's because he has... A lot of diaspora in his mm-hmm. uh, uh, local constituents in, uh, in um, uh, Montreal.
0: Well, you know, free trade and the world of immigrants, so there's lots of stuff going on here. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this.
2: Hey, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you.
0: This seminar about long term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.